What if you found out your father was not your father? Danny Shapiro joins us to talk about her new memoir, Inheritance. What's missing from our understanding of recent Native American history? David Troyer will talk to us about his new book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. Plus, our critics will discuss the latest in literary criticism. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Danny Shapiro joins us now from Boston, where she is on book tour for her latest book. It's called Inheritance, a memoir of genealogy, paternity, and love. And it debuted this week on the New York Times bestseller list. So congratulations, Danny, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pamela. It's great to be with you. So this book begins with a very particular incident, which is, took place in 2016, which was when you did what many Americans have thought about doing or have done, which is you went to a genealogy website. And what happened then? Well, what happened, and I should say that it was pure whimsy on my part. It was like recreational DNA exploration. My husband was uh, doing it himself, and asked me if I wanted to. And I could so easily have said no. That haunts me sometimes, because instead I said, you know, sure, why not? And I submitted my DNA. And when the results came back a couple of months later, they were peculiar. And that's what it felt like initially. I was raised Jewish. Both of my parents were from Eastern Europe. I would have expected my results to be something close to 100% Eastern European Ashkenazi. And instead, my results showed that I was 52% Eastern European Ashkenazi, and the rest was this smattering of Western Europe, French, English, Irish, German, Swedish. And initially, that was so absurd to me that I just thought, well, this is just wrong. Or maybe all Jews are 50%, but it never occurred to me that it was much more than that um, initially. So did you go to other Jewish friends and say, like, hey, what were your results like? How did you kind of look into that? My certainty about who and where I came from was such that I didn't even really explore that much. What happened next was that my husband's results came back, and he is from the same background as as I am, and his results were much closer to what you would expect, nearly 100% Eastern European Ashkenazi. So that raised a little bit of a red flag, but the thing that really did was a first cousin who was a complete stranger to me appeared on my page on Ancestry.com. And that was just very difficult to to understand or comprehend. I still could not imagine that I was going to find out what I would eventually find out. But, you know, I spent 54 years believing that I absolutely understood my, uh, my own identity. So there was this first cousin, and he was identified only by initials. But I knew that it was someone that I didn't know. I know all my first cousins. So at that point, I have a much older half-sister from my father's previous marriage, and I had recalled that she had done genetic testing herself years before, just for health reasons, wanting to find out if she had any hereditary conditions. So I wrote to her and asked her if she still had her results, and she did, and she sent them to me. And there's a very simple way of comparing two kit numbers of, of two different people to see how closely you're related. And that was the moment that my life changed because when our two kit numbers were compared, it showed that we were not related. We were not siblings. We were not half-sisters. And I knew what that meant. 
it would have meant that either our father wasn't her father or our father wasn't my father, but I knew it meant that my father wasn't my biological father. How? Because if it was going to be one of us, it was going to be me. She was much older than me, so he would have been, you know, a much younger man when she was born. She looked like him. Mm-hmm. She sounded like him. She had a familiar kind of quality similar to him, and I did not. It had been the story of my life that I looked very different from my family, something that was commented on literally every day of my life. It just was clear. It was, it was clear, and it was shocking, utterly, you know, profoundly shocking. But that's what I, I knew. I knew that that's what it meant. What was the gut level feeling other than shock? Was it fear or disappointment? It was a kind of terror. There was a rootlessness to it. You know, we use that expression all the time. You know, the rug was pulled out from under me. And, you know, we say it and don't actually really think about what it means. It felt like that. I felt like underneath me all was a void. It was just like my roots had been pulled up. And I had no idea what it, what it could possibly mean. I found out that my beloved father, who as a writer spent much of my life writing about, he died when I was 23 years old in a car accident. And ever since then, I mean, I became a writer and I started writing both fiction and memoir that was a kind of attempt to, in certain ways, understand him and put him back together again. And then suddenly at the age of 54, this news that he wasn't my biological father, it was like the, 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 the end of a story and the beginning of a story in my long life of trying to understand my dad. So you had spent all of this time in your writing, in your life, trying to figure out who your father was, what presumably the relationship between you was or meant. And now you find out that it's like the character, this person was not the person you thought he was. I mean, I was left with two really big mysteries. The first was, if my father isn't my biological father, who, who is? Mm-hmm. That was the first. And the other was, what did my parents know? I was left with a couple of really extraordinary clues that very quickly came into focus for me. And I should say that this was all happening on the eve of a trip that my husband and I were taking to the West Coast. Our son was a high school student, and he was in a film program at UCLA. And we were heading out west. We were going to San Francisco and L.A. And so the first couple of days of this were you know, it was like both an inward journey and an outward journey. I was in airports, I was on airplanes, and all the while trying to piece together this story. And I remembered very clearly a conversation that I had had with my mother, who also is long dead. I had had this conversation with my mother in 1988. I was 25 years old. It was the second anniversary of my father's death. And I remembered this because I didn't want my mom to be alone, so I invited her to Sarah Lawrence while I was in graduate school, and I was giving a reading. So she came with me. We drove up to Sarah Lawrence, and I introduced her to a friend of mine before the reading. Mm-hmm. And my mother said, oh, nice to meet you. Where are you from? And my friend said, Philadelphia. And my mother said, oh, my daughter was conceived in Philadelphia. And I just looked at her, and I said, Mom, what are you talking about? I had never heard that. It's a very strange thing to be 25, and suddenly hearing the story of your conception for the first time casually mentioned to sort of a random stranger. And my mother said, oh, it's not a pretty story. Hmm. So that night, driving back to the city, I pushed her and 
she proceeded to tell me that she and my father had had trouble conceiving me, that they had gone to an institute, and that was the word she used. She didn't say clinic. She didn't say hospital. She said institute in Philadelphia, where they would be able to figure out precisely where she was in her ovulation cycle, which was very new technology. And she would call my father in New York, in New York City where he worked, and he would come racing down to Philadelphia. And I said, well, why would he come racing? And, and she said, to do the procedure. And I said, what was the procedure? And she said, artificial insemination. So she was telling me that I was conceived by artificial insemination, but making it very clear to me that it was with my father. Do you think she knew? Yes. So this is the second part of the unraveling of the mystery. I did take it one step further. I spoke to my half-sister at that time, back in 1988, and I asked her if she had remembered anything about my parents having trouble conceiving. And she didn't really remember that, but she did know something about the history of reproductive medicine in this country. And she said to me at the time, you really might want to look into that further because there was a practice in those days of mixing donor sperm with the intended father's sperm. And so I went back to my mom and I said, mom, I just heard that there was this practice. And my mother just, she did not miss a beat. She said, absolutely not. Can you imagine such a thing? My father was an Orthodox Jew and that would have been a procedure that would have been considered really not okay in, in the world that he inhabited. So I completely shut the door on it. I did not think about it again until 2016 when I was staring at those results and I instantly knew what they meant. I knew that it meant that somehow there had been a sperm donor and that my biological father was in fact a sperm donor. So I dove into research. I mean, I researched like my life depended on it. I began, I mean, part, there was a tremendous sense of urgency, both because of the groundlessness that I was describing, mm -hmm. just needing to try to piece together my identity somehow. And the other was because anyone who might still know something about the circumstances, either of my conception or of the world at that time, was going to be very old. And I needed, I needed, to, I needed to reach them and find them right away. Let's start with the mystery cousin who showed up on Ancestry.com, because for those of us who aren't familiar with that website, like, how does that happen? Is it, is this, it's, it's sort of networked and public and they match you with people who are somehow genetically related to you? Like, how does that, how does someone show up on your page? You can opt in or opt out of that if you do one of these genetic tests and all the companies have that option. So if you opt in, and many people do because part of why they're doing the DNA testing to begin with is because they want to discover different branches of their family tree. Mm -hmm. So if you opt in, then people with whom you share DNA will show up on your page. Sometimes they have full names, sometimes initials, sometimes aliases. That's up to the person in terms of how much they want to reveal about themselves. But they will show people with whom you share DNA, and they will also show with a pretty high degree of precision the relationship. Wow. So did you contact this person? I wrote him a note, which you can do within the site itself, to which he didn't respond. But then my husband and I, so my husband has a background as an, an investigative journalist, and I've done some journalism myself, and we just started, you know, sleuthing, just trying to piece together, okay, so first my mother used the word institute. Mm -hmm. You Google Philadelphia and Institute, it took about three seconds 
to find the long, defunct institute that my parents would have gone to and the doctor who ran it. And it was on or very near the campus of Penn. So then the thought became, what would a profile have been of a sperm donor in the early 1960s? And we both thought a medical student, probably a medical student at Penn. And I don't know how we arrived at that. I mean, I didn't even watch Masters of Sex when I was I had absolutely no history of you know, any kind of knowledge in this, in this area, but we both had that just hunch. And so then there's the cousin, and he only had initials, but there was the name of someone who administered his account. So sometimes, like, if you were to do this, let's say your husband wanted to do it, you could administer it, and it would say your husband's initials, your husband's name, and then administered by Pamela or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there was a name associated with the first cousin's initials. And using nothing more than Google and Facebook, within 36 hours, we were able to zero in on the first cousin, just going through names and figuring out his profile, or actually it was his wife who was administering his account. So on Facebook, there was this utterly surreal span of minutes in which I was looking at a Facebook page of a total stranger and thinking, well, if you are my first cousin, this man in Ohio, if you are my first cousin, then an uncle of yours would be my biological father. Right. I mean, that was just, you know, absolutely clear. That's amazing and terrifying that you could find that information out so quickly with the help of Google and Facebook. Well, I mean, we're in this really, really interesting sliver in time right now because these kinds of secrets have been kept since the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the, in the early days of, of both reproductive medicine, adoption, affairs, men who have children they never knew about, and so forth, now we're in this moment where because of the incredible one-two punch of easy, accessible, popular DNA testing, I mean, these DNA tests were the most popular holiday gift this past year of all gifts. You know, families were giving them to each other. They were stocking stuffers. Millions and millions and millions of, of, these, of these kits sold. And the internet, the one-two punch of that makes these secrets impossible to keep, but people really believed that they were going to go to the grave with children never knowing the truth of their identity. Donors, often medical students, donated frequently under the guarantee of anonymity, never imagining a future in which someone could spit into a plastic vial, send it off in the mail, and find out everything. So how quick was it from finding this Facebook page of your first cousin to tracking down your biological father? Five minutes. Wow. What did you feel like? Where did you find him? Who was he? And what did you feel like when you just saw him, presumably encountered him in some way online. The first cousin's mother had passed away and there was an obituary online and she was survived by a rather large family and one of the survivors was a brother and the brother was a doctor. And so we Googled the name of the brother who's a doctor and he's a retired physician who lives in Portland, Oregon. And 
Googled him. And he also, and this falls into the, you know, you really can't make this stuff up category. He is a medical ethicist. (laughs) And so looking him up immediately saw that he was a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. Mm -hmm. And then the first time that I laid eyes on him, he was delivering a lecture uh, on medical ethics. And I mean, the surreality of that moment, I mean, I deliver a lot of lectures. I stand behind lecterns and speak to crowds and, you know, run Q&As. And here I'm watching this 78-year-old man standing behind a lectern and speaking to a crowd, you know, and, and doing a Q&A. And the first thing that I noticed, I mean, he, I, I look just like him, but I, I couldn't even register that. Mm-hmm. I just, I mean, that was more something that I kind of came to realize, but it was the way that he was gesturing mm-hmm. was the way that I gesture. And I think the first thing I actually said aloud to my husband who was sitting next to me at that moment was, my God, he even runs a Q&A like I do. Like there was just a quality of familiarity. And that's just something that you either see or you don't see. And in and, and that moment, I realized that I had never seen that before. I mean, I'm sure it was very complicated what was running through your mind and, and, and what you were feeling, but was there relief? Was there joy? What were you feeling? Initially, I was feeling a combination of both the pieces of a puzzle that I had never been able to entirely put together that was so much of a driver of my life. There were things about me that I just didn't understand. I think it drove me as a human being, and it drove my work as a writer in many ways. I I mean, all these years, I've wondered, why so many memoirs? Why? (laughs) This is your fourth, fifth? Inheritance is my fifth memoir, and I still think of myself as a novelist. I began as a novelist, and I turned to memoir, and I, in the last decade, it's all I've written. I've written no fiction, and I was always puzzled by that, you know, waiting for the next book, and the next book seemed to be a desire to excavate further. And I was like, there was something that I wasn't getting to and I had no idea what it was. I'm not even sure I could have articulated that. I just kept returning to memoir and becoming this serial memoirist. And so there was a feeling of profound sense-making about it, but it wasn't comfortable. It was very uncomfortable, but it made a lot of sense. And then over time, There are many other feelings that have gone along with it. I think ultimately it's incredibly liberating to know the truth after a lifetime in the dark. Did you know immediately that you wanted to get in touch with your biological father? I knew immediately. I began to write him an email. I tried to put myself in his shoes. I tried to imagine what it would feel like to be a 78-year-old retired physician married for many, many years with grown children and grandchildren and to just open your email one morning and receive a note like this. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a refrain in my book, which is, how old is too old for a surprise? You know, and so I just wanted to be careful and be respectful and let him know that I didn't want anything from him, that I was reaching out to try to unravel a mystery. So, yeah, I mean, I wrote to him right away. And what was his response? Initially, silence. I wrote again, I think two days later, which is not very long, but seemed like an eternity to me, just asking him 
to let me know if he'd received my note and saying, I understand if you need time to process it, but I just, I'm in such a state of confusion and, and, and this would go a long way to my beginning to be able to understand who and where I came from. And, and he then wrote back and it was a very brief and lovely note just saying, I mean, the subtext of it in a way, which I sort of parsed Talmudically was, I mean, he said, I live in a retirement community. I'm surrounded by my children and grandchildren. We're a tight-knit family. I've been discussing this with my wife. If you'd like to send me more information, I'd be happy to review it. So in a way, what he was saying was, please don't hurt me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Please don't upset the apple cart here of my family that has been my family, you know, for the last 50 years. But he was also telling me that I was right. Right. And then I wrote back to him and I explained the entire way that I had arrived at him. And he then wrote and he immediately offered me medical history because I had been giving incorrect medical history for my entire life, both for myself and for my child, which is just a part of what happens with the secrecy surrounding this kind of thing. And he very kindly and in a very sort of doctorly way said, you know, I imagine you'd want some medical history. And then over time, our relationship, you know, evolved. But those were the first couple of steps into it. What was it like to finally meet him? We ended up meeting he and his wife and my husband and myself met for a long lunch when they had come east to visit a friend. And the feelings were twofold. It was hard to even look at him. It was like looking straight at the sun, you know, because I would look at him and I had such an awareness that I came from him mm-hmm. biologically. He did not feel like my father. That was very, very clear to me. My father is the man who raised me. My father is the man who I, I, I loved and who I've you know, spent so much of my life thinking about and who, who I mean, the, the way that I think of it is that my father loved me into being. You know, I had 23 years with him, which wasn't nearly long enough, but he was incredibly formative to me. The man who is my biological father feels to me like we're cut from the same cloth. The language that came to me within days of meeting him was that he felt like the country I was from. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd never been to that country. I didn't know its, you know, its culture, and I didn't know its language, and I had never eaten its food, and I had never walked its land, but somehow I was from there. And that's what it felt like. So ultimately, the feeling is that I come from three people, my, my mother and the father who raised me, who is my dad, and my biological father who you know, contributed to my nature. Do you have some kind of relationship now with your biological father? Yeah, we do. We, we see each other from time to time. When I'm on tour in Oregon, I'll see him. We exchange occasional notes. I have told him that I'm not going to write about him anymore after inheritance because I just want to have a relationship with him and not have him be or be concerned about being somehow my subject matter. Was he concerned about this book? Yeah, I told him from the outset that I would be writing about this. I mean, if you are a memoirist and a, 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 a meteor of a story comes crashing into your life like this, I knew instantly that I was going to be writing about it. it, it it's, it's the end of a very long exploration. You know, all of my memoirs have in a way led to this one. And 
I also told him from the outset that I would respect his privacy. He's a very private person. His name is changed in the book. Some identifying details are changed because it was very important to me to preserve the relationship. I mean, I even sent him the manuscript before finalizing it, which is something that I've never done with any family member, mm-hmm. with anyone ever. I wanted him to be comfortable that his identity, that he felt that his, that his identity was protected. And I wanted him to like it. <laughs> what was his response when he read it? He wrote me a beautiful note saying that he loved the book and that he felt that it was fair and thoughtful and accurate. And, and, and that meant a lot to me. I felt, I felt I needed his permission. If your father were alive now, what would you say to him knowing this? Mm-hmm. That's such a great question. And I've been speaking to a lot of people who are you know, reaching out to me who are in that situation where they have living parents and they find out something like this. I think it would, on the one hand, be so illuminating because one of my biggest questions was, how much did you know, Dad? My research has led me to believe that at the very least, he must have deeply suspected that I was not his biological child, because partly because of the way that I look, but partly because people going to this institute knew why they were going. There was a lot of euphemism. Mm-hmm. Parents would be told it was a treatment and it was there to boost their chances and stuff like that. But my father was a realist, and I believe he knew And I would have loved to have been able to talk to him about that. And yet at the same time, such a heartbreaking thing to have a conversation about something that someone so wanted to take to the grave with them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and and in a way, I think, especially at that time, and maybe for the next couple of decades, parents who had kids, you know, using donors, really wanted the complexity of it to just disappear and just be a family and have the idea that there was a donor be incidental, which of course it, it just isn't. It's not incidental. It's, it's wonderful that the technology exists, but it's not without its complexity. I mean, I've spoken with people recently who actually say that with their fathers who are still living, that they're never going to talk to their fathers about it. They, they talk to their mothers, but they don't necessarily, you know, it's, it's the, the heartbreak of that, the sadness of that, I think keeps them from from wanting to. Would you want to reassure him in some way? Oh, very much. I mean, I talk to him every day in my head. And, you know, when, when the first pieces of publicity and, and, and reviews and, and magazine pieces started coming out about, about inheritance and there was like photos of, my, you know, photos of my dad and me, you know, in the Times book review, the like wonderful, joyful photo of the two of us that accompanies the review there is a way in which I look at photos like that, and I think, could he have imagined if he if he could have seen a future in which that moment, that photo would be in you know the paper of record? Oh my God, you know, would have been the last thing that he would have wanted. And yet, at the same time, ultimately, what I come to is that you know there's a moment in my book where an elderly rabbi that I go see, someone who knew my dad says to me about something that my father did earlier in his life, we thought your father was a hero. And I've come to really feel that walking the walk that he did, making the difficult choice that he made, going against his religious beliefs in order to be able to have a family with my mother 
makes him a hero, makes him a hero to me. And I wish I could say that to him. And maybe in a way I am. Do you regret going to that website that day and submitting the test? Not even a little bit. I, you know, the irony for someone like me who has spent my life trying to understand, trying to make meaning out of what I understand, if I'd gone my whole life having been in the dark about something as essential as my paternity, that would have just been, I just would have missed the boat. And, and also, it makes so much sense of things. And so I mean, there was a friend early on, very early on, who I had dinner with, a very wise friend who said to me, when you get to the other side of this, you will be free. And I remember thinking, noticing that she said when, not if, because at mm-hmm. that point I definitely was in the if territory. But I knew that if I could, if I could really integrate this, that there would be liberation in that because I was learning something about myself that simply was true that had eluded me. It's an amazing story. It's no surprise that it's already a bestseller. Danny, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Love talking to you. The book again is called Inheritance, a memoir of genealogy, paternity, and love by Danny Shapiro. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. David Troyer joins us from L.A. He is the author of The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present. David, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the title, and I want to talk about it in a few different ways. And first, with actually the Wounded Knee Massacre or the Battle of Wounded Knee, as many people had sort of goes by two different names, and maybe you can explain that. But it's a reference that many Americans are familiar with, but Many probably only vaguely, and our international listeners might not be familiar with at all. So let's talk about the actual massacre at Wounded Knee, what happened there, when. It's the starting point of your narrative, and well, you, you have a sort of an early chapter that does the back history. And then what does it come to signify for Native Americans today? The massacre at Wounded Knee in December of 1890 was an incredibly painful and traumatic episode in both Native American and American history, I might suggest. Around that time, you know, the Native folk, the Lakota at the, on the Great Sioux Reservation, which had been split up into a bunch of different, more or less contiguous, smaller reservations, Pine Ridge, Standing Rock, a few others, were really having a difficult time adjusting to reservation life. And Sitting Bull, famous Lakota chief, had been assassinated. And people were really, really scared. Native people were really, really scared and wondering what was going to happen. And so there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of movement, um, a lot of questions about what the future would hold for them. At the same time, the ghost dance religion, which was this, this sort of almost like a fundamentalist religion was was growing on the plains. It hadn't started with the Lakota, but by 1890, it had come to them. The ghost dance was, you know, it was believed that if you danced a certain dance and you wore certain clothes, as well as didn't drink, 
eschewed violence, worked hard, and were religious would mean that you would, in a sense, sort of be saved. And this made the government very, very uncomfortable. So the government's building up troops. They're sending more and more troops to the, to the reservation. Native folk are getting more and more rest, restless and upset and scared. And in all of that, there was an Indian agent there or a former Indian agent named McGillicuddy who was complaining officially to the government saying, don't send troops, don't send guns. The more guns and troops you send, the more likely it is that there will be something violent that happens. And sure enough, the reconstituted 7th Cavalry came in and they intercepted a band of Lakota who were moving from one place to another, rounded them up, surrounded them. And then the next morning when they were trying to disarm the the band, a uh, gun went off. No one's quite sure who shot or why. And the cavalry opened fire on men, women, and children. And over 150, between 150 and 300 Lakota were gunned down, most of them women and children. Hmm. I mean, there's also a book, a famous book, with, with Wounded Knee in the title, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by D. Brown from 1970. It sounds like you are working off of, of that in your title, presumably. Right. Why did you decide to have Wounded Knee in your title and to refer in particular, to that book by D. Brown. Well, 1890, I mean, that massacre at Wounded Knee was almost immediately taken up as and understood as being sort of the end of us. Mm -hmm. 1890 also saw the close, the official close of the frontier. The government declared the frontier settled. Mm -hmm. Destiny had been manifested, right. I guess, in people's minds. Frederick Jackson Turner, in the I think the next year or the year after, gave a big speech and posited his frontier hypothesis that America is defined by its frontier, and that makes America different from any other nation on earth. It's when the reservation period, you know, not didn't begin, but, but was the way in which sort of Native people lived. And it was the last real armed conflict between Natives and non-Natives in the West. And so it even then it got taken up as this is the end of a certain version of Indian life. And then subsequently in the 80 years between the publication of Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee and the massacre itself, this idea that natives were dead and gone, that according to Dee Brown, our civilizations and cultures were destroyed, really took root. And I grew up with that understanding. And I, I read Dee Brown's book when I was in college. And I remember feeling so conflicted. On one hand, Dee Brown is a really sympathetic writer and he really cared deeply about our Indian past and, mm -hmm. and our present tense. And so he, he elevated us on one hand and drew attention to us and what we'd endured. But on the other hand, it's as almost as though he killed us all over again by saying our culture and civilization were destroyed. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I'm not destroyed and my reservation isn't destroyed and my culture is not gone. Neither is my religion, you know, my sense of self and, and our, our tribal nation. And by extension, travel nations across the country, we still exist. But that is such a hard thing to make people understand. And I think all natives have at some point in their lives had that conversation. Yes, I'm still here. Yes, we still exist. Yes, we still matter. And people look at us as though we're crazy when we tell them this. But in the popular imagination, we haven't been living for the past 125 years. We've just been in some sort of afterlife, a perpetual purgatory of, of suffering. It's kind of fascinating because at this, at, during this same time period, there has been a very clear 
reckoning with and recognition of other ethnic groups within the United States, whether they're Latinos or African-Americans. And that hasn't happened as much with Native Americans. And I, I don't know if that's because many Americans sort of see it, as you say, as a kind of settled situation, like that there these are there are a small number of these people, they're isolated on reservations, or if there's some other explanation for why that is, why there is that still that difference. I think there are a lot of reasons, and mm-hmm. I think you touch on a couple of them, but one reason why sort of we don't have as much of a presence in terms of people's understanding of contemporary America is that Native Americans occupy a central place in America's stories about itself. We are imagined all the time. The very first you know, revolutionary act of the young colonists back in the 18th century was to dump tea in Boston Harbor, but they dressed up as Native people and then dumped the tea in the harbor. Mm-hmm. So America's very first act was was in reference to and in relation to us. They were protesting how they were being downtrodden by the British by dressing up as what they imagined as downtrodden people. And then, so we occupy a central place in the stories America tells about itself, and yet we are, because of numbers and geography, uh, almost invisible in the daily lives of most Americans. So there's a huge disconnect. Between the sort of purely symbolic and the reality of the human beings. I mean, the fact is, you know, most Anglo-Americans will have had some real, live, lived reaction with Latino people, with African-American people, with Asian-American people, et cetera, but not so much with us. And so it's ironic when they finally do interact with us, they don't have a cognitive home for that experience. So when my brother went to college, someone asked him, hey, so what are you? Where are you from? He says, well, I'm native. I'm from a reservation in Minnesota. And she said, well, no, you can't be. And he said, why not? And she said, well, because we killed all of you. Hmm. And so he's standing right in front of her. He's talking to her. He's a classmate of hers. And yet she can't recognize his existence as an Indian person because it doesn't jive with what she thinks of Indians, which is primarily that we're dead. You're telling a story of your brother. I mean, what has that been like for you? I'm in a slightly different position because I'm not recognizably native. And it, it happens all the time. I was on some French TV show and, and some live TV show, basically the French Oprah. I was, I was a young writer and, you know, I didn't know anything. And, and he leads off uh, our conversation by saying, well, you know, you're a Native American writer, but you don't look native. What do you have to say to that? And I was really offended. And, you know, when I was young, I... I only knew how to attack. And so I asked him, I said, well, how many Indians have you met in your life? Answer me. One, me. Two, maybe. I said, the fact is you don't know what we look like. You know what you think we should look like because you've read James Fenmar Cooper and you've seen Dances with Wolves. Mm -hmm. We come in all shapes and colors and sizes. We know that, but non-natives don't seem to know that. We have to fit the phenotype for us to be real. So... My experience of it is is slightly different. I hear all the dirty things that people would say behind closed doors about Indians because they just don't think I am, at least back home. Your approach to this book is also interesting in that 
this is a kind of history, but you're not a historian. You are, as you mentioned earlier, a novelist. You've written four novels, and you've studied anthropology. So how did you approach this subject, and how do you think it would be different from, say, sort of traditional historical approach? You know, I never tried to parse the difference between what would be traditional history and what I do. Starting with my previous book of nonfiction, Res Life, and, and up to and through this new one, I've just written Native stories in the only way I know how. One of the big points of the book is that that history isn't just the sum of things that have been done to Native people. But we've been actors and agents in, in our own history and in the history of the country. And what I really wanted to show through that were the ways in which we live, not the ways that we've died. And this is a book about Indian lives, not Indian death. But in order to do that, I couldn't just write a book with names and dates. I had to incorporate the voices of, of a multitude of, of Native people, myself included, to show the ways in which history is embedded in us and lives through us. And I couldn't do that any other way than looking at the written record by talking to real people and by looking deep inside myself. And so the result is a kind of melange of history, journalism, and memoir. And I just don't know any other way to do it. The structure of the book, too, is interesting in that it's it's largely chronological and you have a part that you devote to sort of pre-1890, going all the way back to 10,000 B.C., and then six other parts that follow. I'm interested in, in the second part, which is immediately after the Wounded Knee Massacre, you call the period between 1891 and 1934 purgatory. Why? After 1890, when we're on reservations and it seems like everything is over— the government continued its efforts to deprive Native individuals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and to deprive Indian communities of political power. Can you give some concrete examples of sort of the, sure. the, the laws that both, you know, presumably most of these are local and state laws, but how did that work? that relationship between states and tribes and the federal government was still evolving at that time. Um, most of the laws that touched on our lives were federal laws. And federal Indian policy beginning in 1890 was to try and integrate us into the American mainstream. One impediment people thought to that process was the communal ownership of property. Tribes owned collectively the land in their reservations and they thought, well, individual ownership is the way forward. That's mm -hmm. how you become civilized. So they tried to break up reservations and allot parcels to individual Indian people. The result was we lost over 80% of our land base. 80% of our land base passed out of tribal and Indian control and was open to white settlement. So our land base was, was fractured further between 1890 and you know 1920. Additionally, another impediment to our quote-unquote civilization were the ways in which tribal cultures were lived out through tribal family connections. So they tried to sever that. They tried to break tribes by breaking families. And to do that, they formed Indian boarding schools, which were quasi-compulsory. Thousands upon thousands of Indian children were removed from their homes, often forcibly and often coerced out of their homes, and sent to boarding schools far from where they lived, where they were going to be whitewashed, weren't allowed to speak their native languages, 
their hair was cut, they were dressed in uniforms often, forced to march to learn animal husbandry and sewing and home economics and all of that stuff. And the result was a considerable amount of trauma. But but what's fascinating in, in both of those efforts, and this is something I really try to show in the book, is that despite the government's best efforts to destroy tribes, we reacted to those disenfranchisements in unexpected ways. When you put all these different Indian kids from all these different tribes together in boarding school as a way to break Indian communities, those kids ended up forming connections and friendships and romantic relationships, and they carried those out into the world. So later on during the period of tribal determination, Indians across the country, previously separated by geography and language and culture, had a shared experience, had a network of connections, and they used those to strengthen tribal government in the 1940s and 50s. As you make clear, I mean, Native Americans are not a homogenous population. No. And so those policies had a kind of inadvertent effect of actually collapsing some of those lines between the various nations and tribes? Exactly right, yeah. When I was researching the book and I went to the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana, I got introduced to a woman, who, a teepee maker, and interviewed her and talked to her at length. And her name was Nomi Campbell. And she asked me where I was from, and I said, Leech Lake. And she said, oh, so do you know the village of Ball Club? And I said, yeah, it's the next village down the road from my family's village. She said, well, do you know Alan Wilson? I said, yeah, he's one of my dad's best friends. I mean, he's dead now, but but I know him. She said, well, Ida's my sister. I said, wait, Ida Wilson is, is Blackfeet? She says, yeah. She married Alan, who's Ojibwe from my reservation. I said, where do they meet? She said, Flandreau Indian Boarding School. Hmm. And so... There are ways in which all these different tribes came together, worked together, lived together, learned from one another, and so that we weren't isolated and surrounded as we might have been. And so it had an unintended consequence, which was to our benefit. Going back to this period of purgatory and the various laws that existed, you talked about a couple of the the federal laws. When did that go away? I mean, how long did those laws last? Well, some of them lasted a long time. It was, for instance, against the law for Native American people to practice their religion. And these laws were enforced for many decades, that if you attended Pueblo ceremonies in in the Kiva, if you did the medicine dance, if you were Ojibwe, if you did the sun dance, you were denied rations guaranteed to you by treaty. You were denied annuities guaranteed to you by treaty. You were denied housing. You were not employed by the government or by the tribe. You were basically blacklisted and starved if you practice your native religion. And that law was on the books until Jimmy Carter signed the Indian Religious Freedom Act, which I might have it off by a year, was around 1977. I'm going to actually have to skip over approximately 80 years of, of, of history that you cover in the book and jump jump directly to the last part, Digital Indians, which is 1990 to 2018, because I want to talk about two very recent things. Presumably, you were not able to cover in the book. The most recent elections obviously brought some good news for Native Americans, and I'd like to hear your your, your thoughts on that and the significance of that. But let's start there. Someone recently asked me if I thought that the election of Sharice Davids in Kansas was a sign that things were turning around for Indians. And I said, of course, it's a good thing for Indians. I said, but 
Sharice David's election is a sign that things are turning around for Kansans. I said, by way of, or, and this is because David's experience of disenfranchisement, of subjugation, of structural inequality, puts her in a really, her, her experience of that as a Native person, puts her in a great position to represent all Kansans in Congress because I don't think it's a secret that many middle Americans who were once middle class are middle class no longer. That for your average Kansan, it's hard to have access to education, capital, healthcare, in our country where the wealth gap is growing and growing and where elites have more power and the quote unquote average American has less and less, most Americans are finding themselves in the position that Indians have been in for centuries. And for that reason, Sharice Davids is the perfect person to protect the rights of all Kansans. So it's not just good news for Indians, it's good news for Americans. I think in your very first answer, you referred to Native American history, but also American history. Was part of the goal of this book to show how interwoven those two things are beyond what we think of as the kind of Native American period in history, which is the colonial period and the and the manifest destiny? Absolutely. One of the big points of the book, one of one of the, its major themes is that American Indian people are entwined with American people, that that Indians fate is tied to America and America's fate has always been tied to ours. That's a huge point of the book. There's this tendency, however, to think of Indians as in America, but not of America. And I wanted to show that that's actually not the case, that if you really need to understand the country, if you want to understand what America means, you cannot understand it without thinking about us. Final question. Looking at America then through that lens, I can't help but ask, given the timing, about an incident that happened last weekend that was essentially all over the news and the internet and that showed Native Americans very much in the context of a lot of the kind of contemporary divisions and and problems roiling America right now. And that, of course, is the incident with the Covington Catholic high school boys and a group marching for indigenous people and then black Israelites all by the Lincoln Memorial. And I'm Again, no, this is not in your book, but I'm curious what your reaction was that, again, thinking about Native Americans in this larger context. Well, in terms of just the the smaller contextual concerns of what happened in D.C. last week, I don't think very much of the openly racist behavior of a bratty, privileged white kid. I've got bigger fish to fry. And, you know, where I come from, you're supposed to punch up, not punch down. I think it's the ultimate expression of privilege that a garden variety privileged, you know, racist kid gets all of our attention. So that said, I'll be happy when that news cycle ends. On the other hand, once again, and this is one of the big points of the book, America is at war with itself. America has always struggled to make its behavior match its ideals. Are we a country of hunger where we quest after other people's things? 
are we an imperialist country? Are we a country that doesn't care about the rights of minorities or disenfranchised people? Or are we a country that believes in supporting and protecting one another? That's been at the heart of of all of its major conflicts. That was a question that was embedded in the Civil War. That was a question that was embedded in the fight at Wounded Knee. Mm-hmm. What kind of country do we want to be? And we see that question coming up again in relation to the Covington boys and Nathan Phillips in Washington, D.C. So once again, although, you know, the way Trump has treated the issue, the way the alt-right has treated the issue, the way the networks have treated the issue, it leaves a lot to be desired. But I'd just like to point out, once again, Native people are, through our strength and our resilience and our creativity, forcing the question what kind of country do we want to be? And might we want to to privilege our virtues and our values over our baser impulses? Well, that's a very good point to end on. David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. David Troyer is the author of The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present, and it is reviewed this week on the cover of the book review by Ned Blackhawk. Joining us now are critics Dwight Garner, Jen Salai, and Parl Sagal. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hey, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. Let's talk about what you all reviewed this week. And Parl, let's start with you. Oh, I reviewed a devastating book by Yiyun Lee, who is a MacArthur Fellow, one of the, I think, kind of modern masters of the novel and short story. She writes these really bleak, kind of Chekhovian stories about, you know, many of them are set in communist China where she grew up. This book is about, it's a novel. And it's a series of conversations between a mother and her teenage son who has killed himself. And the added, added dimension to this novel is, is you know, Yoon Lee has written about her own suicide attempts, her own depression, and two years ago, her own son, 16-year-old son, killed himself. And so this is the sort of backstory to this, to this novel, which is called Where Reasons End. And it's unlike anything I've read. You know, it's, it's not a book where she's sort of excavating... You know, what happened? Was I responsible? Why didn't, what did I miss? You know, what were the signs? It, it's not interested in that. It's not interested in in grief as, as we normally talk about it. She's really trying to find some other kind of language and space with which to still be with her son. That's what it feels like. And to mm. continue the conversations that they were having and to and and to talk about what grief feels like and what trauma feels like and what loss feels like without using those words. She's hypersensitive to words that are much handled and bandied about. And she really wants to find her way, this, this is my feeling, to, to describing what, what is left when somebody goes. Why do that in fiction as opposed to memoir? I think there's just more space. I mean, I also think that she started writing this book right in the days after he died. So... I, I'm sure there's some way of of just sort of instinctively playing with words, being with words. Like in the book, the mother knits after her son dies. She goes to his room and she just keeps knitting and unraveling, knitting and unraveling. And, and as I was reading this book, I was like, this is what you must have done. But you must have done this with sentences. You know, you, you must have just been like writing is a thing I know how to do. It's the place I can go. And I feel like this book emerged from notes and ruminations and doing it in fiction, I think, does give you that added element of space. I think it's also I, I mean, I can't imagine what I don't know if she's doing any publicities for this book or anything like that. But I think it's 
it'll also allow her to just talk about the book instead of talking about her own experience. And she is private. You know, she is somebody who's written, I guess you can call it a kind of memoir about her own depression. But, you know, she's somebody who hates using the word I. She's, you know, she's not interested. She comes from this William Trevor school of sort of loving reticence and loving reserve and thinking that that's where really deep feelings can be found. It's really unusual. I mean, it's one of those things I was thinking about. I was like, would I give this to somebody if they were grieving? Would I want to read this? And I don't know. I think she's created something much just larger and broader. You know, it's 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 not even it's not therapeutic. It's like anti-therapeutic, you know, and in that way actually seems much truer to people's experience of grief, I find. I think anti-therapeutic can itself be therapeutic. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it's 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 really it's really unusual. And she's just endlessly exciting and an original on the page. I recommend it. Jen, what did you do this week? This week, I reviewed a book by Bridget M. Davis called The World According to Fanny Davis. And it's a memoir, actually, Mm -hmm. of her mother, as well as a sort of social history of Detroit in mainly the 60s and 70s. And the story that she wants to tell is one that she, that Bridget Davis couldn't tell for a long time, which was essentially that her mother ran an underground numbers gambling operation in Detroit. And, you know, this was remarkable for a number of reasons. One was there were very few women doing that at the time. And another reason is that her mother, who migrated with her family from Nashville, Tennessee, as part of the Great Migration, that this was a way in which the African-American community in Detroit created essentially an economy for themselves where, you know, people would play locally. They would play with their local numbers bookie or banker. Can I ask an idiotic question? Yes. (laughs) What are numbers? What does that mean? What does numbers gambling mean? I don't know. So to explain what numbers gambling is, so essentially it evolved out of a time when the lottery was outlawed. So for a long time when the lottery was legal, there was a thing called policy gambling where people would make side bets on the lottery. And then the lottery in the United States, essentially, state by state, was outlawed. And so this new way of gambling was devised called numbers, where they would try to find a three-digit number. And actually finding the three-digit number (laughs) turned out to be pretty complicated because in an unregulated business, how do you find a three-digit number that everybody can trust as being honest, that nobody had advance notice of. And so what they decided to do was they found that they could use the daily racing forms and use the payouts oh, wow. and the number to the left of the decimal well, you're point. You're an ingenious species. Wow. I mean, it's, yeah. So essentially she got involved in this and, you know, people would come to her. This was, you know, sort of small scale gambling. I mean, people could bet with a quarter. Fanny got involved in the numbers initially because her brother actually uh, was a horse trainer at one of the racetracks. And so she started learning more about how this stuff worked. And she realized, so she had at the time, I think, four kids. This was before Bridget, the daughter who wrote the memoir, was born. She had four kids. Her husband was ailing, so he could only find sort of intermittent work at the auto plants. So What she decided was that this was a way that she could provide for her family. It also meant that she could do it from home, which was a big, big thing for her. And so she started her own business, essentially. And at first she started, I think, with a penny business. Then she started working as a bookie for one of the big 
numbers men in Detroit, Eddie Wingate, who's very famous. I think he eventually was involved with like Motown, but he was known for being pretty ruthless. And so eventually, I think after owing him a large amount of money, she decided that she wanted to strike out on her own. And she did. And she sustained this business until her death in 1992. You know, she started it, I think, in the late 50s, early 60s. She ended up buying a house, although that's another part of the history, which is really interesting and complicated because at the time, buying a house if you were African-American was actually a very difficult, if not impossible, endeavor because a lot of banks wouldn't loan to you. And so she ended up entering into this very risky land contract with a white seller. She eventually bought the house outright, but that was, you know, one of the things that Bridget Davis does in her memoirs. She shows how, so she herself was the fifth child. She was born into comfort because at the time her mother had already established this business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so she remembers a really great, loving childhood. She had a very close relationship with her dad, She had a good relationship with her mom, although it comes out in the memoir that her mom was constantly stressed because I think it's a very... She had an empire. Yeah. I mean, she had a business that she had to take care of. And if somebody won big on a number or if too many people bet on the same number and that won... She would owe people a lot of money. To so, say nothing of five kids. And, and the five <laughs> Where kids. Where is the surprise right. about the stress? Exactly. So, you know, Bridget Davis remembers, though, this, you know, really sort of wonderful childhood. Also, the money afforded them, you know, not only things, but also opportunities. She got a really great education. Eventually, she went to Spelman College. And so she has really good memories of this. But, you know, when she starts looking into it she, and, and looking into the actual social and structural history of Detroit and the situation facing African-Americans, she realizes just, you know, legally, aside from, you know, the fact that the business was underground, but just, you know, to buy a house, all the redlining that was going on, just how precarious all this stuff was. This is, I think, her attempt to really sort of reclaim a history that she couldn't tell for a very long time, because while her mother was alive, it would have put her mother in jeopardy. And then for the longest time afterward, I think she felt she couldn't, she couldn't tell it, not because of shame, but just she had always been taught that that was just something you just didn't tell people about. Numbers Running was obviously also huge in Harlem. And, yes, exactly. Um, and when we were moving up there, a couple of the houses and the one next door to us had a numbers running business and evidence of it still in the basement. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I and actually, you know, I think there was a, when I was doing some background research, I mean... Only four or five years ago, there was an article in the Times about a numbers operation that was busted in Harlem, you know, very small scale. But and another thing to mention is that the lottery, the state lottery was eventually re-legalized in the 70s in Detroit. And, you know, initially it looked like just sort of a competitor, which I think was a scary thing. But Eventually, Fanny found a way to sort of make it work for her. And instead of using the daily numbers from the racing forms, she ended up, it turned into like a game of policy where it would be a side bet on the lottery. And then she could use the lottery as essentially her backup bank in case people really wanted to place big bets on something. So it is, it's a totally fascinating story. (laughs) I I find it extremely mathematically challenging, I have to say. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is like incredibly entrepreneurial and... and Well, and and she had to also, you know, one of the, some of the things that 
Bridget Davis recounts in, in her book is her mother taking bets on the phone mm-hmm. and just sort of how quickly she sort of had to figure out mm-hmm. are too many people betting on a particular three-digit combination. There were certain things known, certain combinations known as fancies, which were very popular numbers because they were Bible verses or 007 for James Bond or the Jen area code. almost worryingly proficient in this. And I, I, really I want to go to the track I, with like, Jen. I actually wonder, what are you going to do with this knowledge? Like, what you're saying is like far too detailed and, I mean, and dare was, I say passionate. Well, I feel like I'm not a gambling person, but I was totally, <laughs> totally interested in the way in which this worked. And her mother was constantly, I think, sort of calibrating, yeah, the, the probabilities of stuff in her mind. The theme here this week is memoir or memoir adjacent. Mm-hmm. Dwight, you did flat-out <laughs> memoir. I did. Uh, this writer, Tommy Tomlinson, who wrote for many years, more than two decades, for the Charlotte Observer, and he wrote for the Observer back when the Observer was a big deal. I'm not saying it's not now, but in the 90s and the early aughts, the Observer was, you know, maybe the South's most literary newspaper, just its best-reported newspaper. And he was one of their columnists. And I, and I had read him there. You know, I, I really dug his stuff. And so he's written a memoir now called The Elephant in the Room, One Fat Man's Quest to Get Smaller in a Growing America. And so this book arrives. A, I know I like, I like Tommy Tomlinson. B, I too was, was a pretty fat kid growing up. And, and he grew up in the South, as did I mostly. So, so three bells lit right there. So I pull it off. And he's a very charming writer. And what happens is uh, the, the book starts when he is um, he's working for ESPN doing some sports writing. He gets on the scale one day and he's 460 pounds. And he realizes that he doesn't want to die. He's 50-something. He worries that his life will end, it, it, quoting him, like a needle lifted off a record. It could happen at any moment. His, his mm-hmm. health is terrible. So he, he gets a Fitbit. He starts training. He eats less. And, and he starts losing weight. But as it is with memoirs, all memoirs of addiction, the part about, the part about um, tumbling into the darkness is, is, is the best part because he's just a, a scholar and a poet of fast food and southern food and just all the biscuits and gravy and, and the, you know, the buying the hamburgers in the, in the drive-thru and going and huffing them in the parking lot and those kind of scenes. He evokes that so well and he's so charming. And you're really happy for him when the weight starts to come off. I read excerpts of this. I don't know where it was published. Was the, the Atlantic, Atlantic. Had a big Atlantic yeah. And his voice is just so, I don't know, like there's a certain kind of candor and and shame and sweetness so all wrapped yeah. up in it. It brought know? me back. I mentioned this in my review, but it brought me back to being a, a young reader in the 80s and 90s. It was a certain kind of Midwestern middle-class columnist that doesn't exist as much anymore because these newspapers have kind of been just, you know, harrowed out. I mean, the, the, the America's, you know, newspapers don't have as many columnists as they did. These great syndicated columnists like Irma Bombeck or Bob Green or, or, or Roger Ebert or Ellen Goodman, I think her name was, at the Boston Globe and, and Mike Royko. I've said him already. Anyhow, these people, Dave Barry, Louis Grizzard in the South, and they had these sort of friendly voices that talked about serious things. And they, and they mm-hmm. were, they wrote for the every person. And, you know, people like that are still around, but not quite as many of them as it used to be. And Tommy Tomlinson has this great voice. When you write about sports, I don't care about sports yeah. very much. When he writes about it, I'll read it. He writes about pop music a lot. I'll read that too. There are a lot of books recently, you know, fat positivity books and a lot of books by women about, about weight. And, and, and they're all very interesting, but it's rare to see a book from a, from a man on this topic. There's a few coming out. I was noticing there's like this one and there was another one of, um, like a, a month ago. Yeah, like this and sort of like... Kiesa Lehman's. That's which, right. Right, right, about, right. Heavy, yeah. you know, yeah. Yep. That there's, you know, more attention to it. But to your point about that voice and sort of how it was developed, it is really interesting because I was, even just from that one excerpt, He's he's confiding, you know, he's somebody who it, it feels like he knows who he's talking to. And I was like, that's the difference. Sometimes when I read these other pieces that are about these, you know, experiences of life or whatever else, I'm not really sure who the audience is, you know, like it sort of feels like these words are just floating there for some kind of public mm-hmm. versus somebody like Tomlinson, who 
has come up writing for this particular kind of readership or coming out of a tradition where he does really feel, I don't know, intimate. Like he like has he's a relationship with his readers. Yeah, and he's writing regularly for you. But I just, I could knew like when those sentences were landing, I was like, you know who you're writing for, you know, or you are very good at giving the impression that you are writing for a particular people for a particular purpose and trying to hit a note. He's a populist, you know, you know and he's not even trying to be. I mean, he grew up poor and he writes about Southern food. You know, it's a working people's food. I mean, you eat all those biscuits, and that fried chicken. You're working in the fields all day and you're burning it off. So his family, his parents worked in a, in a fish processing plant on uh, an island in Georgia. And so he writes about these huge meals they would have and he grew up loving it. Then he becomes a writer. You know, he's sitting there all day just kind of eating cheese cubes and M&Ms and he's still eating these massive meals. And he's very funny about it. And he's, he's very good on how, you know, pain drives people to eat and overeat. And, you know, it's a common, we've read this before. These are not new things, but to, to write about it so well takes you somewhere new. He's just good on it. All right, let's run down those titles again. Dwight, you reviewed? Yeah, it's called The Elephant in the Room, One Fat Man's Quest to Get Smaller in a Growing America. Jen? The World According to Fanny Davis by Bridget M. Davis. And Parl? Where Reasons End by Yu Yun Lee. All right. Dwight, Jen, Parl, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, albeit not right away. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.